if someone comes in to see you and they have a problem, undersell and overdeliver. Welcome to the Dental Head Start Podcast. I'm David Keir and this episode we sit down with Dr. Lawrence Neville. Lawrence is a young dentist, he's a practice owner and he's done so much in his 12 years of practice. He's an Invisalign key opinion leader, he's a guide dental implant master and he's a coordinator with the IAS Academy. We talk about all of these things that he's achieved in this podcast. This episode is packed with information for dental students and graduates and we get into the podcast that he listens to, the impact of COVID-19 on his dental business but also his dental events company. Um, We talk about his mentors early on, how he got them and what advice he has for you with finding a mentor. We talk about implants and when you should do that and we talk about something he's passionate about, interceptive dentistry preventing situations that can end up in full mouth rehabs further down the track. This is something I found really interesting that I didn't know a lot about. We talk about dental events and how a lot of this has transitioned to online and webinars and how the value of in-person events is still there um, and he's looking forward to with his business, Dental Events Australia, to revamping this in 2021. This episode, it's packed with little tips and tricks and information and Lawrence is is a really nice guy. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. But he's also created Dental Events Australia, an event company that brings speakers out to Australia to teach us topics that aren't covered well here. Aesthetics is not just prepping teeth. If we want to be minimally invasive, we need to use aligners or some sort of orthodontics to put the teeth in the right place before we change their form. And of course, the pioneer of this is Invisalign. They've got the most experience, the most cases have gone through their platform and the most in-depth tools to use to get your patients from where they are to where they want to be. Once you're ready to provide aligners, Invisalign Go is the perfect entry point. It's the first step in becoming an Invisalign provider, allowing you to do relatively simple cases effectively and efficiently with their online tools. Go to invisalign-doctor.com.au to start your aligner journey today. Dr. Lawrence Neville, welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. Thank you very much for having me, David. Delighted to be here. It's actually, it's a pleasure to have you on, Lawrence. We ran into each other at a course, actually, I think it was about two years ago. And um, to be honest, at that time, I didn't know much about you, but I've learned a lot since, obviously, preparing for this podcast. You're only, you're 12 years out. You're a dental practice owner that looks like you have an amazing practice. Um, You're an Invisalign key opinion leader. You're a guide dental master, IAS Academy. You're doing so many things and you run Dental Events Australia. How do you find the time to do everything that you've done? Um, I think with a lot of help from some very good people um, and I have a lot of people helping me in the background, it's not just myself. Um, so number one, I probably have to thank all of them. If any of them are listening, then um, all their help's really, really appreciated. I've got a great team that helps me with dental events and I've got a great team that helps me with the practice. Um, and I think I'm just the type of person that I like to be busy. I, I don't like to sit down and, and do nothing. Yeah, I love that. And um, I, I definitely take a little leaf from that book, but I, perhaps mine's a bit more chaotic. Do you have any advice for someone who's trying to pack a lot in, um, how to find that team or or how to you know get the help they need to get them to what you're doing? Yeah, I think, I mean, first and foremost, I think you've got to lead by example. Um, 
And secondly, I think you need to let your team members know they're appreciated. Um, that definitely helps. Um, and then you've got to also be able to let go a little bit and uh, and trust when you do have a good team member or when you've when you've trained a, a team member um, to your standards. So I think trust is really important. Appreciation of the team is really important. Um, and being able to let go and, and delegate is really, really important as well. Um, with regards to organisation, I think um, I could probably do with some tips on organisation as well. Um, but I think just uh, you just got to have lists and you got to have diaries and I think you got to use all the technology available to us nowadays to organise uh, your life. There is so much available to us. We have all the tools at our fingertips. It's it's about using it and planning. Um, makes a lot of sense. Now, we're going to get into a lot of things that you do and I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, but I wanted to start with just a question around, you know, obviously a topical thing, COVID-19 is affecting us all and you run a, a high-end practice in the middle of Sydney. Um, how's the last six months been for you? Yeah, so I think like everyone else, um, a bit of a roller coaster, um, scary um, very uncertain at times um, but I think we're coming through it stronger than we've ever been um, and I think that's the, the message really that I, I, there's a lot of worry and uncertainty at the moment but I also think that there's a lot of opportunity and hope um, and I've listened to a lot of podcasts um, over the time, um, some fantastic ones out there and, and like yourself who's doing an amazing podcast as well and the only thing that comes across sometimes is a bit of sort of doom and gloom um, and I think that we've got to stay positive and I think there are a lot of opportunities that are going to come out of this. Um, COVID-19 is a virus. Um, it's made people even more aware of their health if they weren't already um, and I think that hopefully will spread into the into the dental industry as well. Um, the practice-wise, we're doing quite good. We're, we're back up to full capacity while trying to social distance, while trying to do extra mouth rinses, while trying to do extra infection control procedures. Um, but the four weeks or five weeks that we were closed was a uh, was quite a scary time. It was the uncertainty and the unknown. Yeah, I think the unknown, the uncertainty and, and being a practice owner, a lot of us new graduates or students can't quite grasp the, the I guess, the fear you would go through at that time. Um, I'm going to latch on to one thing. You said you listen to a bunch of podcasts. I listen to a lot and they're often, I guess, more business actually. Um, what podcasts do you listen to? Um, so, I follow Howard Ferran, um in America um, quite a lot. Um, another two dental podcasts that I listen to are Two Reds Are Better Than One, which is two um, funny, entertaining, but also great communication and business coaches, Chris Barrow and Ashley Latter. Um, and I bring them out to Australia with uh, my continuing education company, Dental Events, as well. But their podcast is invaluable and, it, and it's a good, uh, fun um, entertaining listen as well um, so that's, that would be the dental space that I listen to yeah we'll definitely touch on um, them and the people you bring out to Australia as well I've listened to a few of their podcasts and um, what I distinctly remember is they talk a lot about getting up at 5.30 in the morning um, which scares me a little bit um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I have to one thing that I'm not as a, as a morning person so my work's done later at night rather than early in the morning I've tried all sorts of things and I'm now definitely in that camp and that's why we're recording this uh, late at night. So, um, let's talk a bit about how you, you got down this path. So, um, you're, you've got a bit of an accent. Tell us a bit where you grew up and um, how you got towards dentistry. 
Yeah, so um, I grew up in Glasgow, Scotland. Um, hopefully people can understand that accent and I'm speaking <laughs> clearly enough on the, the podcast. Um, so grew up in sort of a small town just outside of Glasgow. Um, went through school and always wanted and was interested in sports, really. Um, kind of got to the end of school not knowing, um, like most sort of teenage boys, not knowing where I wanted to go or what I wanted to do. Um, my sister is a doctor. Um, being quite competitive with her I knew that I didn't want to work in a hospital setting per se um, and I also knew that doctors worked weekends and that sounded terrible to me it sounded like the worst thing you could do um, you should be playing sport on the weekend not working um, so it kind of came down to some choices and my dad um, luckily was, was really good at sort of guiding me and I looked at um, optometry I looked at physio um, and then I looked at this dental um, and I'd actually been a bit of a dental phobic when I was younger and had a few bad experiences even though I had a wonderful dentist that actually looked after me um, so dentistry sort of came across and it was like the odd choice out but for some reason I sort of I related to it um, with being a sort of dental phobic and I, and I chose to go and do dentistry I have to say I probably hated the first year of dentistry where it was all theory um, reading books, studying, um, grades had come to me quite naturally until that point. And then it, the jump going to university, I found really hard. Um, and I found myself not actually doing very well in my first year of university as well. Um, and then gradually as it became more practical and we got to see patients and we did clinics, I started to enjoy it a little bit more. Um, and I'd still probably say even to the end of uh, university, um, I probably wasn't in love with dentistry it probably wasn't my passion um, but I think since graduating I think it's become my passion um, and now that I really enjoy doing dentistry clinical I enjoy learning about it I enjoy the business and communication aspects around about it as well. What do you think um, flicked that switch was it just having the hands-on component? I think so I think it's the, the patient interaction um, I think it's the satisfaction from knowing that you've done something well um, and you've helped someone um, and I think it's just that relatability um, from person to person um, and I think we're in a very privileged position where we really can um, sort of change lives and we can help people from the, the smallest treatment to the biggest treatment. Yeah, we've got to not forget that we we really can help people. We can, you know, I, I had a patient today, she's just been diagnosed with cancer for the second time and she had just a concern. I fit her in at lunch and my lunch break and being able to relieve that concern just by literally saying that things were okay meant the world to that patient we've got to not forget that it's not all about the you know the cosmetic rehab or the rest of it we can we can make a lot of difference with the small things as well tell us a bit about your dental phobia yeah um so I was younger, I probably had too many sweets, I probably had too many sugary drinks, <laughs> um, I probably was a bit of a naughty boy, didn't brush my teeth as much as I should have, um, and I had a couple of abscesses when I was younger, and, and even though the dentist did the best they could at the time, um, it was it was sore, it was pain, and it was real, um, and I was under 10 years old, and, and being numbed up when you've got an abscess is, is sore, it hurts. Um, and, and that's where probably twice I think I had that. Um, and from there, my realisation was that, God, I actually have to look after my teeth now and, uh, and probably not eat as many sugary drinks and sweets. Um, but that was that was the experience in it, and it stuck with me for a long time. The smell of the dental surgery, um, walking into the dental surgery would make my hands sweat. Um, and I kind of 
overcame my fears by becoming one. <laughs> Just run at adversity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you did you find that that dentist was influential in your decision to become a dentist? Yeah. Um, or, or was there so, anyone else? Yeah, not really. I didn't know. We had no sort of family members who were dentists. I didn't know any dentists particularly. Um, but I think his, I mean, I still look back at, at him and what he did well and he had such a calming, reassuring um, nature um, that even though I was there panicking in the chair and probably overall thought that I didn't have a, a good experience, he, he was very calming to my mum, he was very calming to me and he was very assured about what he was doing. Um, and still to this day, I keep in touch with him. He's actually just retired, but he's got a couple of... Um, girls who are in Australia and he's been out to visit in Australia so I've, I've been lucky enough to meet up with him for some lunch while he's been over this side of the world. That's that's actually that's really cool that you can have those connections. Those people make such a big difference in our lives. Do you remember your first patient? Hey, that's a very good question and one that I've never been asked before. <laughs> I remember my first tooth that I took out and I remember who I took it out on I don't think that was my first ever patient and I don't think I can remember my first ever patient, which I'm not sure whether I should or whether I shouldn't, but yeah, I, don't, I, I can still remember the first day that I took a tooth out and I can remember the first time that I did an injection on one of my colleagues when we were practicing at university, but I can't remember my actual first patient. Do you remember any of the, I guess, the really good or the perhaps not so great times in dental school with patients? Oh yeah, oh we had a few uh, a few cracking times in dental school with patients. Um, uh, yeah, we've had some some good and some bad experiences, and I think it's inevitable you make mistakes along the way. Um, and I think it's just really important to learn from the mistakes as you go. It's. Um, I remember my first tooth that I took out. I um I broke it because the surgeon ha- he was like, "Oh, put more lateral pressure, more lateral buckle pressure," and just breaks the tip. But then he gets it out with a probe right in front of me, and I just thought, "This guy's a magician." I don't understand yeah. how that worked. <laughs> yeah. It was also a perio perio tooth. Tell us about your first job. So my first job um, was in. So I I studied. So I went from Glasgow to Dundee University to study, and then when I qualified from Dundee, I came back to Glasgow. Um, and I was very, very lucky that my first job was um, with a dentist called Michael Kelly. Um, lovely guy, full of life, really good fun, did a lot of implants, does a lot of cosmetic stuff. And I kind of had the sort of the National Health Service side of the job where I sort of serviced the patients and then he sort of did more of the, the sort of high-end stuff. Um, but he was fantastic. Um, from the day that I went in, he had a list of stuff that he wanted me to complete within the first year and really pushed me to sort of step outside of my comfort zone, step outside of the box, um, but also be safe um, as well and know that he was there in the background if anything went wrong and he could help me um, and also test me at times to make sure that my knowledge was up to date um, and I knew kind of what that what I was doing. Um, in Scotland, when you have your first job, I think it's a, a great, great system. They call it vocational training and every graduate gets paired with a dentist who has a practice that dentist gets paid a fee for having you in the practice, but in return, that dentist has to be on hand to mentor you, has to spend an hour a week going over a case with you, um, and has to be there to basically help you get out of jail um, if you don't know what you're doing or if something goes wrong. Um, and it's just a, a great, great system. Um, and that first year of learning, I just don't know how I would have done it um, without them, to be honest. 
Yeah, it really does sound like a great system and I've talked with a few people who have gone through that. Do you have any advice for someone trying to find a similar kind of mentor? I, obviously, in Australia, we don't have that system. Yeah, um, I think first and foremost, I think mentors are invaluable um, from a mental health perspective. I think the first year out of uni is a really scary experience. Um, and I think having someone there to hold your hand, to even talk to about cases, about the stuff that went well, the stuff that didn't is really important. So I, I would encourage and implore every new grad to find a mentor at least five years older than them um, that they can sort of um, speak to, go over cases with, even if it's remote and they can't get into the clinic to see them. Um, just do what we're doing right now, just have a really good chat about stuff. Um, the way to do it, I think, is first and foremost, the easiest people to do it with are the specialists because they want your referrals um, and I wouldn't refer to anyone. I basically, I don't refer to anyone that I haven't actually seen work. And the reason for that is I want to know that their personality fits my personality. So there's continuity between that. And I also want to see how they interact with the patient, what their clinic looks like, what the clinic feels like as well. So that when I'm telling the patient to go and see them, I can be confident that their practice and them are, are a great fit for my patients as well. Um, and I think that most specialists, um, will be more than happy to have you on hand for a day, a couple of days, or, or possibly even more. Um, I think you've just got to keep on knocking on the doors, and I think you've just got to keep on sending messages out there as well. The best mentors of the world in the world are also the busiest people in the world, so even if they say yes and then don't arrange a date, you've got to be the one chasing it up. Um, even if they initially say no, go back and ask again because um, if anyone came to me and they were really enthusiastic about it, um, then I would I'd love to help them out. That's great advice. And I think well, the best part actually is that uh, they're busy people. That's why they're, they're in demand. So, if, they, if you ask, they say yes, they never get back to you, chase them up. It's not a uh, personal issue. It's because they forgot. <laughs> and then persevere and ask again. I think that's fantastic. And I think um, uh, this podcast is a testament to the, the profession and the people who are very happy to help and to, you know, spend their time, you know, on this discussion and with everyone else. Um Tell us about early on some of the successes or perhaps some of the failures or challenges you experienced. I think that early on, um, definitely successes for me were, were through mentors and, and study groups. So I think early on I made a really good network of um, people that had different skills in different areas of, of dentistry um, and they were very influential to help me along the way. Um, I think problems that I probably had along the way is being a bit of a continuing education junkie I probably spent a lot of money on education that I've never um, really used as well um, I think I did my implant education too early um, I didn't know treatment planning well enough um, before starting implants um, so my overall treatment planning I think was poor in my first three to five years out probably um, yeah, I did my implant training probably three years out. Um, and I think that that put me actually off extending my implant training. Um, and I think now that I'm much more confident with my treatment planning, my implant 
cases of them becoming um, better and better as well. Um, so I think that that's definitely something I would encourage. I know that a lot of young graduates love to get into orthodontics and implants and it's the, the sort of the stuff with bright lights around it. Um, but I would say that really good just treatment planning courses are, are the way forward for the first sort of three years out and just get better and better and better at treatment planning. Um, so that would be one bit of advice I would give as well. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I've been pretty lucky, I think, throughout my years. I've never had a, a sort of a, any sort of scares with patients with regards to uh, medical legal sort of things. The Again, I think in my first few years out, root canal treatments were very hard. I didn't have the right equipment to do it. I don't think I had the the right processes in my head of start to finish of what to do as well. So I think along the way, I've probably scraped along in the first few years, just getting by with doing some pretty average um, endodontic treatment. Um, and I think that you don't realise what you don't know um, until much later on um, in your career. And you look back and you think, God, I've maybe got away with a few there. Um, and I, and I realised quite early on where my sort of weaknesses were. That's a, it's a good point. We don't know what we don't know. I think that's one of my favorite sayings. Um, when do you think is the right time for implant training? I know that's a very general question. but Yeah, um, I would probably say at least five years plus. I really do. Um, and I think that it should be a much more structured training as well. Um, but I think your hand skills for surgery – I just don't think are, are there in the first three to five years. And in late, and I really think that you should be starting by being really good at removing teeth. You should be really good at raising flaps if you need to raise flaps for teeth that are hard to get out. Um, you should be able to do surgical extractions really well before you then um, start to look at implants. And, and there's so much to go around with implants. There's occlusion, there's, there's perio. There's a there's suturing there's there's so many parts to it that I think it should be five years plus and I think that you should almost have a checklist of things that you should do before you go into implant training as in you've taken out x amount of teeth you've raised x amount of flaps you've taken out x amount of wisdom teeth um, and then you kind of start looking at, at implants after that and then even when you start to look at implants I think that you should start again very much from you've done x amount of implant planning cases that you've sent to the specialist you've done and by that I mean that you plan the case and you almost tell the specialist what you want them to do rather than sending it off saying implant in tooth number one two um, and then I think you should have restored X amount of cases then again before you even start placing anything as well um, and it should really be a tiered system with, with some um, sort of traffic lights and checklists that you do. That sounds like great advice. I really like that checklist um, you talk about and, you know, the different things that we should try and have done before we start implant training. If someone's super eager, say they're just graduated first year, is there any other tips you have if they um, you want to get into implants, any specific types of courses or even specific examples of a course that you would start before you get into the implant? Um, I mean, I learned through the guide master clinician program um, which is run by a guy called Sasha Jovanovic out of Los Angeles um, but they do run the course in Sydney Australia so it's four sort of modules of face-to-face -face learning and a little bit of hands-on but there's no live 
patient training with the course, which is where I think it falls down because I think there has to be live patient training with any implant course because you need to get in there and you need to get hands on and, and do it. You can read about it all you want in a book, but you actually need to get in there with a with a mentor. Um, they have quite a good online library that's fairly cheap to join and become a member for a year. So I think that's a great place to start with their sort of clinical videos um, and their online library. And it's very much sort of research-based as well. Um, so I think that's fantastic. Um, and there's some great mentors on that programme, which I think is fantastic as well. And I would go back to just try and get in front of someone who places implants and someone who you're confident in um, to go and watch and just be chairside. Um, if you can get in there and be the assistant then you're not going to see more than when you're assisting someone that's doing an implant yeah yeah that's really great advice and I think for the students I've said it many times but if you can especially if you're early on in your student days um, becoming an assistant uh, and getting that chair side exposure to all parts of dentistry is extremely useful you do a little bit or quite a lot sorry of Invisalign you're a key opinion leader you do over 100 cases a year um, tell us about your orthodontics journey how you got into this and and what you love about it yeah um, so I, I think I was very very lucky in that one of the specialists that I refer to in Bondi Junction is a guy by the name of Morris Rappaport um, a fantastic guy. Again, he does great lectures. He runs an Invisalign master course in Sydney as well. Um, I went to see him just to make sure that he was a nice guy. I went to see him to see how he interacted with patients. Um, I was meant to be going just to say hi at lunchtime. I ended up spending the full afternoon with him watching what he was doing. Um, I then said, can I come back next week and watch what you were doing? So before and I had known it, he'd actually offered me a job. Um, so I started working for him one day a week, which was great. Um, he did all the treatment planning. Um, he did all the sort of complicated stuff. I just did the really easy, simple stuff that was uh, very much guided by him. Um, and in the spare time, I got to see all the things that he, he was doing from his consultation process to how his practice was running right through to how he was finishing um, cases. He probably at that time was doing about maybe 80% Invisalign, 20% braces. Um, and he was speaking for Invisalign as well, had been using the product for maybe 15 years by that point. So he was a, a pretty influential guy um, for Invisalign Australia. Um, and I was just, again, very lucky. And it was because I kept on knocking on the door and harassing and annoying him um, until... He sort of offered me a job and thought he would give me a, a chance. So that's kind of where my orthodontic training started. Um, and I would probably say I did it a little bit in reverse. So I started learning practically how to do it without knowing the theory behind it. So I sort of had to retrain or retrace my steps backwards. Um, now that I've done a lot of hands-on, I had to go and learn the actual theory behind it and get good at, at treatment planning as well. Um and then I started to get a little bit of um, of help from another pretty well-known orthodontist in Australia, Derek Mahoney. Um, and it was great to do some of his courses and it was great to learn from him as well because both Derek and Morris had quite polarising um, ways that they do orthodontics to, uh, to say they're probably at the opposite ends of the, the spectrum from each other um, with the way that they do orthodontics, but it was good to see both sides of it. It was good to see that they're both obviously fantastic specialists that have done thousands and thousands of cases, and they fairly regularly get to the same end result, but they go in a completely different direction to get there. So there's not 
a sort of a one size fits all. Um, so that was that was really good as well. Um, and from there, I sort of extended it into the other days of the week, which I was working in sort of private practice. And and then by the time I opened up my practice, I knew that I wanted to base it around um, orthodontic, uh, smile makeovers, Invisalign treatments by that point. So this was before you were in the practice? Yeah, so I worked as an associate in Bondi Junction in Sydney um, and also in Ride in Sydney. So I worked between two practices before I made the decision to buy my own practice. Because that sounds like, you know, once you do buy your own practice, it's pretty hard to go and work in someone else's practice. So um, it sounds like there, there is that opportunity for us when we're earlier on in our days, when we're an associate to, I guess, branch out a little and get those that experience. Um, did you Did you work with Derek Mahoney as well? So I have done um, some work with Derek in his practice before, yeah, and uh, I've sort of seen how his practice runs and I've even mentored a few of his uh, students as well. Um, so that again, that was a, a good experience. Um, it's a really busy practice. He sees a lot of patients in a day. Um, the way he structures the patients is, is very clever um, and the orthodontics that they do is, is good as well, so... Yeah, yeah, that's such an opportunity and I think, um, you know, a lot of us probably don't think about the fact that we do, you know, you can forego a little bit of income now, I guess, in a way um, and work in that setting and get the experience to excel now, you know, in this later time in your career. That's a fantastic point. I think so and I, and I would probably touch on one more point there because it is a very good point that a lot of my time when I was a younger graduate was given up to go and view um, work that people were doing um, but very much you reap the rewards later in, in your career financially um, for giving up your time um, when you're in your younger days I think definitely um, and I also think that when you finally decide to buy a practice and you're in your practice dentistry is very very isolating so we only see really our own four walls and we don't see outside of them very often um, so I think at that stage um, you're really not going to have much of a chance to go and see other specialists to go and see other dentists to learn from people so I think you've got to do it in your first five years. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. I really like that. So, you've learned a lot about implants, you've learned a lot about orthodontics and aligners and now you, you focus a lot on smile makeovers. Why do you, what's, what makes you so excited about smile makeovers? Well, I think that brings me on actually to a really good point of one person or one mentor that I had that I haven't mentioned and it's a guy by the name of Teeth Qureshi out of the UK um, and Teeth teaches an academy called the IES Academy um, in the UK and they really teach general dentists how to do proper smile makeovers by aligning the teeth, bleaching the teeth and then bonding or ABB as they would call it on their course. So that's kind of where my smile makeover journey started. Um, and I realised that you could do very simple straightening bleaching and bonding that was pretty easy and you could have some spectacular results and you could really increase people's confidence and, and change their lives through doing it um, and I've just extended that out along the way by using Invisalign sometimes doing composite veneers sometimes doing porcelain veneers but um, that's kind of where smile makeover started for me and that's just uh, the results that you get and the change that you see in people from new hairstyle to lipstick to new clothes is, is just uh, is, is great to see 
Can you remember a recent case where you've really noticed a huge change or you could tell us the story of the patient's journey? Um, let me try and think what we've done last week. So the last case that we finished um, was on a lady who was probably 68 years old. So not your typical smile makeover patient, um, but she had quite severe wear on all of her teeth and a really deep bite that was causing the, the severe um, tooth wear. So again, with all of our patients, we offer them the full treatment plan. Um, and again, I probably half offered it prejudging that she was 68 and she might not be up for doing some orthodontics. Um, but as soon as I said it to her, she said, I've, I've always wanted to straighten my teeth. No one's ever offered me it to for me before i'd love to do it let's do it um so we went through about nine to 12 months of teeth straightening with invisalign and reduced the deep bite and then using teeth caresses technique we then bonded the front six teeth on the bottom six teeth on the top um, and used that as like almost like a fixed splint in the mouth to proper open even a little bit more um, and we got a fantastic result she's got a great smile and um, it's changed it's made her look about 10 years younger um, and and she loves it and it was it was really easy yeah, that's that's amazing. That journey you take the patient on and the the outcome at the end. Um, there's nothing quite like that. Tell us about this technique you talk about with the IS Academy. What what does that involve? Yeah, so I think the one thing that um, Teeth Koreshi's developed or done over the years has been he noticed really early on. Um, crowding and tooth wear kind of go hand in hand um, and he also noticed early on that a lot of patients in their really early 20s or early 30s show signs of tooth wear um, and he his concept is really that no patient nowadays should ever need a full mouth rehabilitation because we should be doing something called interceptive dentistry where we should be intercepting these tooth wear cases much earlier than we actually are um, and the other thing that we should be doing for them is we shouldn't just be handing them a retainer or a splint to wear at night time that no one ever wears we should actually be rebuilding the teeth early on and that acts as a fixed splint in the mouth um, and that's kind of his, his concept so his concept is put the teeth into the right position get them really nice and white and then rebuild them by just doing composite edge bonding on the front six teeth upper and lower if they need it or as they need it um, and it works really well so that's Basically, the, the technique is the Dow technique that he uses, which is taught quite well and quite a lot in the UK, but I don't believe it's taught so much in Australia. And I believe in America, they really sort of poo-poo or they really don't like it in America. But I think it's a great technique. It's really easy to do, very cost-effective for the patient um, and gives great results. Yeah, I've used the technique a couple of times with great results, but it, uh, I guess it doesn't always work. The evidence does support it well. Um, do you have any advice for people thinking about that technique? Perhaps you could even explain what it is a bit clearer. Um, yeah, so I think that it does have to be, you do again need to treatment plan it quite carefully. Um, and I think it does have to be used in the right patient at the right time as well um, the technique basically is that you bond the composite on the front teeth and that then leaves a little bit of space in the occlusion for the back teeth to then 
erupt into occlusion or into bite again. Um, and that happens over a period of sort of three to six months. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's the first few times you do it. I think it probably is quite a, a scary technique. And you just got to be really good at explaining to the patient that their back teeth won't touch, but they'll still be able to function. They'll still be able to bite. They'll still be able to chew, but it's going to feel strange for a, a prolonged period of time. Does that explain it well? I'm not sure if that does explain it or not. Yeah, I think that does co- that does cover it. And um, I think people, I'll actually put some stuff in the show notes, maybe a link or two to some of the evidence about that as well, because it's a very interesting technique. And it, it for some patients in some situations, it's something that I think we really should know about. You mentioned uh, that dial techniques taught well in the UK, um, not so well in Australia, and it's um, disliked perhaps in some parts of America or some people in America. What other differences between different countries have you noticed um well first and foremost i think that um australian dentistry is is fantastic and the standard of dentistry that's done in australia overall is a is very high um i think that the cost of dentistry to the patient in australia is high but they get a great result for it um i think that australians in general engage with their health much better than people in the UK. I think that the UK practitioner is put under more pressure to work faster and sort of set a treatment to a specific price. Um, Where I think in Australia, we're a little bit luckier that we sort of set how long is it going to take us? What's the material cost? Okay, this is what price I'm going to charge the patient. Um, So I think we've got a much nicer way of working out here. Um, Definitely more time, um, slower dentistry, um, and hopefully that means a, a better outcome for the patient. Other differences in the UK, I think in the UK there's a lot more general dentists who specialize in implants um, than there is in Australia um, and they build big sort of referral practices around that. Um, I think the UK is a little bit ahead on smile makeovers. Um, I think there's a lot more competition in the UK for smile makeovers and there's possibly a bit more competition in the UK between dental practices. So Again, price point then has to be a little bit lower or a little bit more aggressive um, for certain treatments. What do you think that um, impacts that might have on Australia? Because uh, I hear it a lot in particularly the American podcast that you know Australia's just five years behind really. Um, what do you foresee for Australia over the next couple of years in dentistry? Um, I mean, I actually I think that Australia's – I don't know about America – per se but if I compare it to the UK I think that Australia is ahead of the UK when we talk about the types of treatment that you do and the technology that's used um, within the dental practices I think Australia most practices are a lot more digital savvy um, than the ones in the UK again because I think that practices in Australia have a little bit more money to invest in new technology Um, so I think well, they might not be might not be doing as much on the sort of smile makeover side of things. I think that they're still ahead in the quality of dentistry that they're doing and the technology that they have available to them. 
It's definitely well. I haven't any experience with the UK, but I, I guess in Australia there are a lot of um, practices that are quite you know up to date or, or cutting edge even um, with technology, and that's one of the things that got me excited about dentistry early on. So yeah, it's really helped me keep my focus. I guess talking about what uh, we do and what we learn in Australia and the level of dentistry, obviously a lot of that has to do with the speakers we have within Australia, which are can be absolutely fantastic but also the ones that come from overseas and your company dental events australia brings in speakers and puts on seminars for australian dentists tell us about the journey like why did you start that company yeah i think um i think when i first came to australia i didn't really know where to look for good um education so i think i looked back to the uk quite a lot um to UK companies and I sort of looked back at what UK dentists were maybe doing um, and as part of that journey I'd come across a guy called Ashley Latter who was a, a communication coach and he's quite a famous communication coach um, between dentists in the UK um, and he sort of lectured all around the world but one place he hadn't lectured was in Australia so I sort of reached out to him to say, listen, I would quite like some extra coaching from you. Um, I think there's areas in my communication that I could improve when I'm talking to patients. Um, And the the topic came up of would he come out to Australia? And kind of very much accidentally, before I I knew it, I was bringing a speaker out to Australia and I was having to hold a, a CPD event or a conference, which I had no idea what I was doing. So it was kind of a bit of stumbling and a bit of luck and then the the second thing that happened in Australia was I also in the UK went to a lot of study clubs and I like to as I've sort of said all throughout this podcast I like to meet with other dentists and talk over cases I like to meet mentors and, and that was all through study clubs in the UK and I sort of looked at study clubs in Australia and I couldn't find, within my first year here, I couldn't find any study club with any dentist younger than about 55. Um, and I thought, where are all the young dentists in Australia? Where are they learning stuff? Where are they going? And don't get me wrong, all of the study clubs I went to with the older dentists who are sort of 55, 60, 65, were lovely. They really took me under their wing. They were good fun. They, they were they very, very generous with their time and information. Um, but I thought, I won't peers of my age or, or a little bit younger to be able to bounce ideas off of so off the back of that I then bumped into a really nice rep from 3M and together we both sort of said why don't we start a 3M study club um, and that kind of started the the journey into events as well so we ran a study club for about a year and um, we begged borrowed and stole some of the best speakers in Sydney to come and speak for us for free and um, still very appreciative of all of them in the early days that came um, to speak for us um, and I'm still very thankful that 3M sponsored it with food and drinks and venue um, and we had a great time with a great 12-month program. I didn't actually know you did that. Um, I can imagine what you, you're saying though about the, you know, a lot of the events, uh, the study clubs, they're a bit of an older cohort um, and I think perhaps a lot of the younger dentists nowadays are looking towards the um, online versions or the um, their own little cohorts that they get from university. Um, what are you seeing now and do you think that that space has been filled? Yeah, so we kind of 
along the way with dental events, we probably got a bit busy and kind of got a bit lost, and, and we pulled back from the sort of the study clubs that we were doing, um, and then some new study clubs came on and sort of filled that space. Just this year, funnily enough, we started our study clubs again, and then unfortunately got halted um, by COVID. But I still think that there's, of um, course, yeah. yeah. For me, I still think peer-to-peer interaction, face-to-face, and and it doesn't always need to be about learning something from the study club, but just being able to go and converse and meet other colleagues and say, yeah, the shit day as well, and oh yeah, that treatment I find hard as well, and have a few and have a few drinks, and I, I still think that that's um, something that's very very important. And I think from doing online webinars or online study clubs or online learning, I think that's very hard to do, and I think it's a big part that you kind of miss out on. Um, so I still think face-to-face peer education and face-to-face peer study clubs is is a great thing. And especially when they're, they're local, you get to know who's in your area. Um, and if you get to know the dentists around in your area, they can help you out from time to time if you ever have any trouble. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're, you're so right about that personal face-to-face. Um, it's basically able to vent, able to learn. Um, it, it's something that important. I think also the COVID being locked down and forcing us into um, the deluge of webinars has made us realize the importance of face-to-face contact as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I can tell you just from speaking to the patients I have in my practice, um, I've never seen people be more excited to come to the dentist um, in my life because it's the <laughs> one time that they're getting out of the house in the day, um, which seems ironic, but it's face-to-face interaction is so important for us um, during COVID. It's so important to us even when COVID's not on for mental health, um, which is another space that I'm quite passionate about. And it's a space that unfortunately dentistry has a, a bad name for because there's a lot of pressure on us as dentists. We're very isolated. Um, and sometimes as dentists, we don't talk to our peers as much as we should. Yeah. Tell us a bit a bit more about that and what you're seeing and what, you, what do you think around that space? Yeah, I think that just, um, I mean, I think that with sort of competition um, I think dentists are very hard on themselves first and foremost Um, I sort of always make a joke that we're not God um, we can't always recreate a tooth as well as God made it in the first place and I think we need to realise that Um, and then also when I speak to dentists try to compare us to our medical colleagues and in medical terms when you have an operation if you have a 80% 80% um, decrease in, in your symptoms, they class that as success. We don't class, we class success as 100%, um, which is very, very different. So I think that we are very self-critical and we're very hard on ourselves and sometimes we shouldn't be so critical um, of ourselves and so hard on ourselves. Um, I think secondly that as a profession, especially on forums, we can sometimes be a little bit hard on each other as well um, rather than being supportive and I think that it's very easy to judge someone else's work as as not being good enough without knowing the complete ins and outs of the scenario of how hard the patient is to deal with of the day you are having if you're just having a bad day and so I think sometimes we should uh, we shouldn't judge each other as dentists as much as we as we do. That's um, particularly that I think all of us as 
young dentists, we go through that situation where we see something and we think that's that's not great. I could do better or I'll replace that filling or whatever and we end up doing the same thing or worse. And I think that's a real learning experience. I know I've been through that and um, we have to remember not to judge before we, we have done it ourselves. Um, I, I feel pretty strongly about the mental health side of things as well and I think that's something that a lot of us struggle with. And dentistry, like you said, it's a demanding profession but it's also one within our own four walls. If we're not getting out there and talking to other colleagues, um, I guess letting that stress go a little bit, um, it can build up and um, yeah, it is important to have that group around you. I look forward to the study clubs with Dental Events Australia coming back out. We'll make sure yeah, we, we send some information out to the Dental Head Start community and um, CPD Junkie as well um, with that stuff. We'd love um, any other young graduates and, and you obviously are in a, a privileged position and what you're doing is fantastic. So any of your young graduates that listen to this podcast um, or follow you, um, we'd love to have them along to dental events. We'd love to help them. We'd love to support them. Um, we try and make everything we do as cost effective as possible. The study clubs we, we try and not charge for, we try and have sponsors. So it's a great opportunity for a young dentist to come along and, and meet some good colleagues who like to have fun and like to learn. Yeah, well, the, the goal of Dental Head Start is to help dental students become great graduates. And um, if you're doing that, then we're happy to help and support and get the, the voice out there. Um, tell us about Dental Events Australia obviously has had a bit of a rocky road with COVID-19. Uh, anyone running events obviously has had some challenges. What's um, What have you guys been doing and what's the plan as we come out of COVID? Yeah, so I think... Firstly, we're very lucky that um, I have a day job in Dental Events Australia is a small part of um, of what I do. So compared to um, all of other event companies that are around, um, I feel like we're, we're very lucky. Um, but we are an events company and all of our events for the rest of 2020 have now been cancelled or postponed and moved to 2021. So it's been pretty hard um, even to use local speakers. Um, international speakers obviously can't come into the country. Even study clubs um, with the landscape changing every week almost on how many people you can have in a room. Um, it's been very difficult. So we, we made the hard decision after doing a lot of planning for 2020, we made the hard decision that we would push everything back to 2021 and we're probably not going to do anything, unfortunately, until April um, unless something changes before then. Um, we then worked pretty hard on putting together some webinar series, but there was a, a massive um, sort of, and there was a massive uptake in the amount of people that were hosting webinars. And we just, at the time, didn't want to try too hard um, to push our stuff onto people when we thought that maybe people were had enough on their plate at the moment with COVID and just dealing with, um, with everything going on. So we've kind of had a little bit of a pause. It's given us time to sort of restructure, rethink what we want to do in the direction that we want to go in. And hopefully that will allow us to come back in 2021 stronger than we've ever been. Um, we've already got a really exciting lineup of lecturers and speakers, local, national and international, um, that are going to do courses for us in 2021. So we're really looking forward to that. Yeah, I, I think... You've really you've handled it well in the way you explained that I think because you're right there was a webinar um, 
onslaught and um, with CPD Junkie, if anyone hasn't seen it, there's an industry report and I, I think we noted there was a 1,200% increase in webinars in uh, March and April. So, um, we were a bit overwhelmed and uh, I think you're right to be thinking about the future, come back strong and I'm sure um, dentists will be desperate for face-to-face CPD at that point. Um, let's let's get back to CPD. You're, you're an absolute CPD junkie. Um, I met you at CPD. Uh, and you host CPD events, you said early on you chose perhaps to do some that weren't that practical or useful. Can you give us a bit of uh, insight into the ones that you didn't find useful early in your career? I think that any course that's run by a company trying to sell a product at the end of it, and it's very, I'm, I'm half wanting to say this and half not wanting to say it, but I think courses that push products at the end of them don't always teach the full picture, um, don't always teach the full research, don't always give you all of the skills required um, to be able to do it. Um, I'm very, very critical, even though I'm a key opinion leader for them, um, of Invisalign and their teaching within the orthodontic space. And it's a topic that I've been talking to them at length about. Um, and certainly when I went through my Invisalign accreditation or learning, um, there wasn't a great deal of support. There wasn't a great deal of teaching. Um, and I don't think they did a good enough job or took enough responsibility considering their product is the, the leading product on the market. I think that they're doing a great job of changing that now um, and they're working hard towards not just selling a product but actually starting to teach people orthodontics, starting to mentor people with orthodontics, starting to get the right speakers on board um, for their education. Um, But I think that's something to be very wary of. If you're going along to a course that might be a little bit cheaper because they're trying to sell a product at the end of it, just be critical of what they're saying um, and take everything with a with a pinch of salt now i have to caveat by saying i'm sure there's some fantastic courses out there that do sell products at the end of them and there's probably fantastic products at the end of them but i think just always be critical um, of who's teaching you um, and what you're learning Um, and i think the the other thing that i would also say at the moment is be critical of learning all of your dentistry on Facebook or Instagram because, again, um, not all of the stuff that we see is research-based or backed and not all of the stuff that we see um, can be done by everyone. Um, some of the people on Instagram have amazing hands. Um, some of the people on Instagram have been doing it for 20 years. It's not something that we should just jump on and do. Yeah, both of those points are fantastic points. I think also the onus um, does fall back on us as a clinician. Obviously, APRO will look at us as the the person responsible for our understanding. So, we've got to make sure that the learning or the courses we go to are the ones that we need to get us to the level we need to be. Um, That's really good. What about the best courses or course you did when you were younger? I think that that the, the guides implant program was some of the best lecturers that I've ever heard lecture clinically. Um, Some of the cases they put up were scary because they were so good. Um, They made you aspire to a level that you might never reach, um, but they really made you sort of aim for the top by watching the stuff that they were doing um, and the detail that they were doing it in. 
and yeah it was just it was fantastic to see and learn and to rub shoulders with some of the best implant dentists and cosmetic dentists in the world um, so I think they are um, their program was really good it was really well structured um, and I think that the tutors they had on the program were just world class um, dentists from Australia and from around the world um, so I, I, that was a, a really good program for me even though I think I took that program too early in my career um, I still think as a program it's fantastic I think the only drawback that they have from their program is that they don't have a full mentor system and they don't have any hands-on, um, which I think is what they're, they're lacking. Um, I think Morris Rappaport's course um, on in Invisalign is a, is a fantastic course. I know that this year I think it's sold out and I think it's already sold out for next year, so that speaks for itself and how popular it is. Um, but anyone wanting to do clear aligners but have a good background into sort of orthodontics, um, I think that's a fantastic course um, within Australia. I think it's very, very affordable for the price that he's set it at as well. So um, hopefully he keeps it at that price. If he keeps on selling out, hopefully it doesn't increase the price. But uh, <laughs> I think it's a very affordable course for the, for the price as well. Um, and I think just nowadays we should be, we should be looking towards courses that are held by people that have had had a number of years in the industry done a number of cases as well so I think you've got to be very critical of the speakers that are coming in um, and what they've they've done and what they've achieved as well mm-hmm. yeah they're all really good points um, particularly you know who who's teaching the course and do they have the information behind them or the time experience to back them up um, guides had a um, we've had another guest on um, who spoke very highly of guide as well so they sound like they do a great course um, let's start to wrap things up and I really like to get some information or tips and bits and pieces for graduates in this situation but I'm going to ask one um, which is a bit left of field you've done a lot in a short amount of time you're only you know 12 years out you're you're doing some fantastic work you're right up there with some of the best but if you could go back and change something, you've mentioned perhaps learning implants too early, but if you could change something to get to where you are faster, what would you have done differently? I think I probably waited slightly too long to buy the dental practice that I'm in right now. I think that I, it was something that it was a big jump for me. It was quite scary um, but I think I probably could have done it two years earlier than I did so I've had my practice now for nearly three years which means that I bought it when I was about eight years graduated and I think I could have probably bought it around about year six or seven and I think it would have given me the opportunity to do the dentistry that I want to do a little bit earlier in my career um, and saying that I do see a lot of young graduates buying practices and that worries me that again they'll be isolated they might not have had all the training that they need um it's a, a difficult profession as it is being a clinician but also being a business owner as well is, is hard and it puts more pressure on you so i wouldn't say i would advise anyone to rush into buying a practice definitely not but i think just in my scenario i was probably ready at about year six or year seven and i also think that it's hard to answer that question because I, I, I don't think there is any fast track. I think you just sometimes got to do the hard yards. Sometimes you've got to do the hours. Sometimes you just, you've got to have done 10,000 of something before you get good at it. Um, 
So I, I don't think there's any sort of shortcuts. I don't think there's any any way to get around it. You just have to spend the time and, and put in hours sometimes. I like that answer actually <clears throat> and we've covered it in a way um, before in that um, we can't rush these things and you've said actually perhaps some things did too early. So, um, that's a really good answer and we will get there eventually. Um, talking about practice ownership, obviously you're business orientated, you're entrepreneurial at heart and um, that perhaps makes it a little bit easier but um, what, do you think there's a bit of a checklist that people could kind of tick off before they get there and I'm thinking perhaps clinical skill or business understanding or life experience? Yeah, I mean, I think when you're an associate, and again, I'm lucky that I've got some really good associates who want to get involved in helping to run the practice or being involved a little bit in the marketing side of things or being involved in the um, sort of the staff training um, or being involved in, in the background of the practice. I'm lucky that my associates want to get involved in that sort of stuff. They don't just come in and do the clinical work and then leave, which is fine to do. But I think if you're an aspiring business owner or aspiring practice owner, um, if you're in a practice and, and as much as you can get involved in the practice without owning it, um, it creates a, a great opportunity for you to learn and to see how the practice runs. Um, I think that, again, there's lots and lots of good business courses within dentistry now um, and I think that you should go on some of them and do some of them um, and and that would give you a good opportunity. Yeah, they're good points, good points to understand before you dive into the, the there's additional stress with HR and, and all the money side of things and then COVID comes along. Um, it's, it's a very interesting time. Um I want to ask one last question and, and I really like this this question. I want you to think about all of the graduates who are they're about to come out in a couple of months and they there's one thing you could teach them. You could get in the ear of every single graduate and teach them one skill or concept or thought. What would you teach the graduating year? I think one thing that my first mentor sort of said to me is that if someone comes in to see you and they have a problem undersell and over deliver so if the problem is just the smallest problem in the world tell them it's going to be a difficult tell them it's going to be a hard one and then when you complete it at the end and you make it look easy you look like a hero that's such a good point it's such a good point it's about managing their expectations i want to say Thank you so much, um, Dr. Lawrence Neville, for everything you do for the um, Australian and international dental community. I think um, we're very lucky to have you come out to Australia, work and live here and produce and provide so much to our community with all that you do. So thank you for coming on the Dental Head Start podcast. Perfect. Thank you so much, David. You're doing the exact same um, and it's it's really nice to be appreciated and recognised and, and I, I, you've got me blushing um, as you say them kind words. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's truly an honour um, to help out the profession that's helped me um, get to where I am in life as well. So um, I love doing what I do and, and I love um, the CPD part of it and I love the practice part of it. Um, and I'm very, very lucky that I, I live in a beautiful country with slightly better weather than the UK (laughs) I love it thank you again that's fantastic CPD is expensive travel time away from work hotels it all adds up imagine being able to see the content from world renowned speakers from all over the globe 
Learn about restorative, full mouth work, communication, surgery, and tons more, all from the comfort of your own home. No travel costs, no hotels. That all exists and is getting better every day on the RIPE Academy from Restoring Excellence. For just $29 US per month, you'll get access to some of the best online content and save thousands on the real-life course equivalents. In fact, if you look really closely, you'll actually see me on there. I paid thousands for that course. It was awesome and now it's just $29 US a month to see the same stuff. Find out more on the RIPE Dentistry Group or at RestoringExcellence.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com slash start to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.